When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. GM Radio. I'm Danny Wuru, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the Northwest Division capsule, and what the capsule is is it is the off-season in review plus a regular season preview, so kind of going both sides of the summer. And my two guests are both first time on Real Gem Radio. Thrilled to have both of them. Steve McPherson of Rolling Stone, Grant Land, Wolf Among Wolves, Hardwood Proxism, and a million other places. And Ben Dowsett of Basketball Insiders, Salt Lake City Hoops, and KSL.com. And the conversation focuses mostly on the Northwest Division. Then we get into some other topics, including the D-League and develop player development, college basketball, and all that, which I actually think was a fascinating conversation. The whole thing runs about an hour ten. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. The way to start this one is actually going to be a little bit different than some of the other ones because I think as we were all doing our prep, the, the most notable thing, and this will start with Steve, is – it was surprising how little turnover there was, not really about who got better and worse with one notable exception, but how little actually changed over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that what, you, what, you, what you're seeing in, in, in this division is a lot of sort of evolution or, uh, you know, dealing with returning from injuries. You look at the Thunder and the Thunders last season, you know, hopefully for them is, is an outlier. But you look at the Timberwolves and the Jazz, they're, they're on sort of maybe – different parts of the curve, but they're not really changing a lot. I mean, the, the Wolves obviously added towns, you know, the, the, there's different moves that happened. The Jazz, there were some changes that happened that let, you know, Rudy Gobert step up when Cantor went to the Thunder last year. But, you know, Denver also had a lot of upheaval during the season last year, but in the offseason, it seemed more like they were cleaning that up and sort of trying to figure out which direction they're going in the future. But there weren't these, other than the Blazers, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, there there wasn't this dramatic seismic shift with a lot of these teams. It's just sort of moving the ball up the field a little a little further in their projects to trying to get to where they want to be. Which I think in, in at least two, at least with Minnesota and the Jazz, I think is absolutely the, the right way for them to have gone, right? Like I don't think maybe with the Jazz you could have, they could have gone for a little more shooting. They could have used more of their space. They could have potentially looked for a point guard upgrade since the Exum thing, although that may still be in the works. But other than that, and I think definitely Minnesota, you would say they did the right thing by kind of just staying on the trajectory that they're at. That's been a big thing here in Utah is just don't skip steps, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. I mean, I think that the Jazz, I mean, I guess the the, the question for them is a little bit more, are you making that eighth spot in the playoffs, the seventh, eighth spot, something like that, or are you just outside of that? And then I guess the question becomes, like, is there something you could have done to push into that, or is it smarter to not try to necessarily push into that right now? I don't think the Wolves are threatening to make the playoffs this season or anything. So, But I, I agree. I think they're both – 
I think they're being patient and they're being smart and they've got good pieces. So both of those teams are going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I think the question for Utah isn't as much about adding pieces. It's whether they could have done something productive with the space, whether whether that even would have been something that didn't necessarily make them better but got them an asset. So like you think about, obviously, it was more more money than they had, but what Philadelphia did with the Kings and that they used their cap space as a bludgeon and they got a lot of assets back. And a deal of that ilk, you're not you're not going to get that. That's an aberrational thing. You can say, oh, yeah, every team who had space should have done what the Sixers did. But I feel like that would have been an option. The other, the other one that just smacked me in the face was Jeremy Lin. But, you know, he made his decision for whatever reason. There were better – there had to have been better options on the table for him. Yeah, Lynn was a guy that got discussed here in Salt Lake, like sort of under the radar by a few people. I liked the idea. Uh, and uh, and what you say, you know, David Lee could have been another thought. There was a lot of talk about if the Jazz would consider taking on David Lee. I just think that their priority at this point, you look at how many assets the Jazz have, and it's not like Philly doesn't have a ton, right? But the, I think the Jazz at, at this point are prioritize like really heavily actually prioritizing the culture that they've got currently with the knowledge that they've got, you know, the Jazz have like like 15 draft picks over the next three years or something like that. It's That might be slightly off, but they have a, an, an enormous number of picks, including a few first-rounders, the one from Golden State in 2017, the one from Oklahoma City that will probably convey in 2018. And I think they've, they've, they've looked around and they said, hey, we could take on a guy like David Lee or like a similar dump like the one that Philly ended up do, getting from Sacramento – that would introduce new pieces to the equation. It might not kill the, the flexibility down the line. In fact, it probably wouldn't. But I think they wanted to prioritize this is the group we're really happy with right now. And unless we can find a true on-court upgrade, I don't think they mind staying under well, well under the cap. Yeah, I think that asset collection, it's, it, you know, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I think Philadelphia is, is doing this to the extreme. And we'll see how that works out for them. I think with the Wolves, what you're seeing is obviously picks have a tremendous amount of value. The thing is, is that eventually you reach the saturation point of you have so many young players, like you need to have some kind of other players around them with some kind of experience. I, I think you saw that happen with the Wolves last year where because of injuries, they were starting two rookies and two sophomores and Thad Young. And it's just you couldn't have a defense. Like, I mean, obviously, some of those individual players had defensive shortcomings. But you're just – defense is so reliant on everybody being detached and everybody understanding the scheme and everybody doing things in a sort of instinctual timing way. That just doesn't happen when you have so many young players and we need to get playing time for all those guys. So, yeah, there is accumulating assets or having – I mean, that's different than having a contract like David Lee's or something like that. But – as an asset collection uh, endeavor, when you're talking about rebuilding a team, there is some point at which I think you begin to get diminishing returns because you simply can't play that many young guys and develop them all at the same time. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and I think, shoot, I mean, Philadelphia might already be at that point, even, although we know that their strategy is kind of to go completely over the top with that. But I think the Jazz maybe even realized a little earlier on that they – I mean, they've got, they're having issues right now with deciding which guys are going to make the 15 man roster. And like down the line, you know, at the end of that, you're talking about guys that are, are, you know, fringe NBA players and so on, but they're still having those considerations. And like I just said, they've got these enormous number of draft picks over the next few years. And you're right. At a certain point, it's like,
like you you assume that oh they can just trade them down the line, but that's not always necessarily a given that you're just going to find equal value for your assets that you've got. And I think they've started to find that middle ground. Other teams have done it as well to find sort of that middle ground between yes, anytime you can get a better asset for a worse asset, that's good, but at a certain point, like you said, diminishing returns, and it can minimize what you what the product you've got on the floor. Yeah, and there also is the reality, and I actually have a piece that's been uh, I submitted to the Sporting News a couple weeks, a uh, m- couple months ago, that still hasn't come out yet because we're just waiting for the right time. And the car concept of it is there's a, re- a really fascinating group of teams where the guys that they have on roster right now are going to be substantially more expensive, and the team for that for me is Utah. And so not only do you have the factor that you know, maybe they have money now, but the guy, just retaining the players they have is going to get really expensive in a couple of years. It is, though, you know, obviously now that they have these guys, that they they control their rights. The jazz, jazz ownership has been very open about they will spend up to the luxury tax. And in my opinion, reading between the lines just a little bit, I think once they get to the contender status that I think we see is possible for this team, they're going to be fine going over the luxury tax. Maybe not, you know, exorbitant tax bills like Brooklyn's were or like, you know, Cleveland's going to have this year or anything. But I think they're going to be fully willing because, you know, what is what is it known that the revenue is for a home playoff game that a team makes? Isn't it like a million just for a single home playoff game? Not sure on the math on that. But, I mean, it's obviously considerable. It's definitely in, in ownership's interest to, to yeah. get those games. You know, and, and when you think about the, the ancillary benefits of season ticket sales, because generally those are lagging indicators, so then you get those for the next year and all that. I mean, it can be worth a lot more as well. Exactly, and I think the Jazz is a savvy. Or, jazz are a savvy organization that realized that. And I think if they, if it comes down to it, and it's you know it's 2018, and they need to re-extend favors after his after his deal has gone over, and that's going to take them three or four million above the, the luxury tax, I think they'd absolutely do it, assuming that they know that that's going to help them continue a contender in the West. So we'll move on to, since we, there isn't really a ton of material for who got better and who got worse, there were some legitimately interesting moves in this division. I guess we'll start with Ben. What was the most interesting, best, you know, a notable transaction to you? I think for me it would have to be the Ennis Cantor trade, which I guess that wasn't this offseason, so, but they did extend him this offseason, so, although I, I do lump those moves into one because, uh, you know, as a guy who saw a lot of Cantor here locally and everything, but even beyond the personality thing and the, the, the trade demand and so on and so forth, the trade confused me for Oklahoma City, as did the, you know, I guess once you've traded for the guy, you've made a commitment to him, you've given up assets, and it's a little bit more understandable that they gave him such a lavish deal that in a vacuum, I think everyone basically agrees he's not worth. But for me, it's more than that. For me, I've really questioned the fit and have been doing this ever since the trade was made. I don't understand what Oklahoma City needs about his skill set. Cantor, you know, offensively, I guess, sure, it's a little bit of a benefit that you've now got a guy you can throw the ball into the post, and if you need a bucket, he a lot of the time he can get you a bucket. But, I mean, this is the same team that has Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. Aren't those guys better options for the whole, hey, we need a bucket, go get us a bucket type option? And with that in mind and the way that Cantor completely kills you defensively, as we know, his shooting range isn't special because they've already got a guy in Serge Ibaka who does that and who does it better. He's a, Ibaka is a better shooter than Cantor is. I, I just kind of don't understand what they felt the need was. And to me, this feels almost like a like a panic move, like, hey, look, Kevin and Russ, we're doing stuff. We're getting, we're getting guys and we're, we're spending lots of money on them so that you know that we'll spend lots and lots of money. I don't know. To me, Did you guys feel the same way or – 
I, I, the thing that was, it's weird to me, and I think you see, and it's hard to know how much this is, how much this is actually affecting the Thunder's decision making and how much of it is, is our perception of it, but it, it does still sort of feel like it has reverberations of, of the Harden deal and the decision not to extend Harden and not to, uh, to, to not roll with him. It's sort of in the way that like, you know, if you have if you have any friends and they make some sort of one big bad decision uh, of moving someplace, then the next time a decision comes up, it's like, well, I'm not going to move. And they're going to be like, it's not because that other thing didn't work out, but I'm not going to move. This sort of felt like that situation where the, the, the front office was like, well, maybe this isn't the guy, but we can't afford to let another guy go, you know, who has talent in some ways. So it, it did sort of feel like it, it sort of put them in a position that was not enviable and they had to make probably – a tough decision between keeping him or letting him go. And they decided to keep him. And I think, I mean, it remains to be seen. I agree with everything that, that Ben is saying about him. Um, I, I don't see how he's an improvement over Ibaka or how he complements the players on the team as, you know, in terms of as being a third option on offense. So, but they were in a tough position and they made their decision. This is what we're going to do. So I guess they're going to have to live with that. Yeah. My, my, my big issue with, everything that happened with them is a lack of understanding of what they needed outside of their three best players. I mean, you have three legitimate all-star, all-NBA players, you know, that have a possibility. But I I don't know if Ibaka's ever gotten it, but he's, you know, in the conversation if he hasn't. For the all-star game? No, for the all-NBA, for for a second. Oh, okay. No, I was actually looking earlier today. Serge Ibaka has not made the all-star game, which surprised me when I first saw it. Like, I thought, in my head, I thought he had made it. He's never made the all-star game. Wow. That's that's amazing. But, yeah, so you think about those three guys and what you would want as strengths and weaknesses next to them, and both Cantor and Dion Waiters, which wasn't a transaction this summer but is still notable, don't make any sense with that. As Ben brought up, Cantor's offensive gifts aren't really necessary with the starting lineup. I think offensively he actually would be very nice with their second unit, but defensively then that becomes a problem. But you don't pay that kind of money to somebody for doing that. And... In some ways, Waiters is more egregious because all of his strengths directly run counter to those guys. And so my theory with it was that they wanted to make a splash. They bet on their development system, and they thought, oh, you know, these guys have flaws. They definitely have strengths as well. We can fix those. But what I've been thinking about is the kind of cruel irony of this is that the guy that Cleveland acquired to functionally replace Dion Waiters and Iman Shumpert would have been an infinitely more logical fit with Oklahoma City, and they could have gotten him at a much lower cost. So what they, I think they went for is they went for ceiling, but they didn't really think about fit. And that's a huge problem when you're transitioning from guys being restricted for agents to unrestricted free agents, because now what you're saying to Kem Duran is, okay, if you're going to be here, you're playing with Ennis Kanter because we have him under contract. I think that the betting on, on development is a little tough. It's really, it's hard to know with, you know, the, the, the coaching, uh, situation changing over. Like, it's hard to know what, what Billy Donovan is going to bring, like how that's going to change things. If, like, it could be that that, I mean, that was actually, I, he was, we, we talked about talking about best newcomer and he was actually my vote for possibly best, best newcomer in the division because it could be the kind of situation where after a down year, you know, they're going to be on the hunt and Westbrook is going to want to kill everyone and Kevin Durant's going to want to kill everyone and they're going to have a new coach and it's going to be a shot of energy and, and then these things like Dion Waiters and Ennis Cantor aren't really going to matter that much. I mean, but in some ways that's the best case scenario is those guys not mattering rather than them mattering. And that's sort of not a great position to be in. 
now I'm frustrated with myself for not thinking of him as a best newcomer because <laughs> I spent I spent like ten minutes on that section because it's really kind of difficult. There aren't a ton of like huge name players right. that came into the division. Um, no, I, I my, one of my biggest questions that I had written down with regarding Donovan was what happens if you know he 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 has I believe the the full agency of the of the front office to do what he thinks is right. You would assume. What happens if Billy Donovan decides Ennis Cantor is killing my team and I can't play him more than 20 minutes a game? Or a similar thing with Waiters, which I think would be obviously less of a big deal because Waiters isn't making the same sort of figure Cantor is. But does that turn into a, you know, and maybe internally it's not a big deal, but we know Cantor made his specific demands out of Utah and, and placed playing time as a, a pretty big reason why My, I'm really interested to see because I think that's a legitimate possibility that we we saw it last year that Cantor they were better when Cantor didn't play unless I'm very mistaken what if that happens again to a really high degree and a, a coach with a new coach who feels he has the the right to make these decisions decides I don't want Ennis Cantor on the court very often for me and especially not with my best players that also fits in with the question that I've had with them is are there is Donovan going to be more willing and and actually separate minutes with Westbrook and Durant more because if you separate them then you start to run into the Canner issue both ways too because we talked about how both Waiters and Canner are got they're you know they're decent off their Canner is often a very good offensive player but you want him to be a higher end option if you start to separate Westbrook and Durant because to just kind of give them some time to do their own thing then you start to get into the question of, well, when is he ever going to be a number one or even a number two option? I'm as fascinated by what Oklahoma City's lineup combinations will be as any team in the league. I'm, I'm really, really just completely intrigued, and I'm on, honestly, I don't know going to happen. Like, I, I don't know, would I start the season out starting Cantor? Is there, like, I think there's a legitimate chance that there's, that Ibaka is not the only big on that roster who's a more useful NBA player than Cantor is. So, like, would you consider Steven Adams? Would you consider Mitch McGarry somehow? Probably not as a starter. But I, I'm, I'm super intrigued by that. And kind of like Steve was alluding to earlier, I think in, in their haste to prove to – or to, you know, to – almost erase their previous mistakes and to prove that they've changed and that they're different somehow, they may have made their situation worse for themselves because Steve is right. Can't, you know, uh, Durant comes up for free agency this off season and you're actually less flexible with the fact that you just signed a guy like Cantor to a huge deal. It's like, yeah, he's here now. There's really nothing we can do about that. I, I I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. And I, I think the jury is, is coming close to being in now on, on Oklahoma city's front office, if you will. I mean, I'm interested, you know, the, the front office stuff is like, it's going to be interesting to see how those minutes get played out and everything like that. I am personally just interested to see them on the floor after it, after last year being so tough on them. But, the, you know, for years, it's sort of been, you know, Scott Brooks's approach, which is for better or worse, is not like a micromanagement thing. He's really kind of like giving Durant the ball, give Westbrook the ball, and then everything else falls into place around it. And they've had a lot, they had a lot of success with it, but it wasn't a very dynamic offense a lot of times. So, it's going to be interesting to just see them with a different person at the reins and, you know, to see Westbrook and Durant back healthy this year. Hopefully they stay healthy. I don't know. It'd be interesting if Billy Donovan managed to un- manages to unlock something that even heretofore has been sort of tamped down in some ways by Scott Brooks not being so creative with the offense. It could be really terrifying, <laughs> even if it's just Durant and Westbrook teaming up in some way that we haven't seen before. So, uh, you know, they're going to be an interesting team to watch, definitely. As somebody who covers a team that transitioned from a 
let's say, less creative offensive coach to a more creative offensive coach, it can make a huge difference. And that's what gets lost in the shuffle sometimes with Oklahoma City is those three guys, Durant, Westbrook, and Ibaka, are so good that they can be an elite team basically regardless of what's surrounding them. And they're worth watching no matter what. And we can talk about that, but the other thing I wanted to bring up for this kind of section, if you will, is the CBA nerd in me was thrilled that we actually saw something that is maybe going to be a a bigger thing in the league in the next couple years, which is the renegotiation and extension that the Nuggets actually pulled off twice. So what they did is they took first Wilson Chandler, then Danilo Gallinari, and they renegotiated their contract for their current for the for the current season, the season that is upcoming, while also extending off of that higher amount. And so what that basically works out to is it's it's kind of an extension with a bonus is the way uh, is the way I've heard it phrased, which I think is a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> and what that does is it allows a team to use their cap space to secure it. Conceptually, if they hadn't paid Anis Canner, Oklahoma City could have done this next year with Russell Westbrook or Serge Ibaka. They can't now, probably. But that is a fascinating piece that a team like the Jazz could consider doing in the right circumstance. Yeah, and it actually makes me slightly frustrated a little further that we were already, you know, it was already kind of too bad that the Jazz, there was reported by Mark Stein that in original restricted free agency extension talks with Hayward that they they were not very far apart essentially, and that the Jazz could have had him for, I think, 452 was the number, which the more important part of that is that they would have had the fourth year guaranteed, which I was I was listening, uh, Danny, to you and Nate the other day, explaining how the rule for this works on, on it being able to extend guys with this bonus like you're talking about. And I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you said that they cannot do that with Hayward because he got that player option in the final year from Charlotte in restricted free agency, whereas I believe they could have looked at that as an option if they had just had him for the four. Am I am I off on that, or is that correct? You're right. Uh, the, the reason for it is actually they are technically allowed to do it off of a player option, but the question is why would he do it? Because right. he, he yeah. can become a free agent. It's better to be a free agent and have all of the flexibility rather than have limited. So, yeah, that is a that is a huge factor with that. And yeah, I, So, Favors signed for a straight four, correct? Right, so he so he might be an option for that. Yeah, he could be. And, and why you want to do that, is because you can secure somebody. And so the, the other one of the other guys that could be a, a candidate for it who's not in this division is DeMarcus Cousins. Because not only that, but you're paying the player. The player's happy because you're paying him what he's quote-unquote worth earlier. So they're getting more money. They're just committing. So, yeah, that it's the Nuggets doing it is a huge step because that shows an openness. And I'm sure there are some people around the league that didn't even really consider it as an option. It's always it's been on the table. And with how massively screwed up the extension system is, that is an option, especially for smaller and mid-market teams, to lock in the guys that they want to lock in. I definitely expect the Jazz to look at that with favors when it's when it's an option for them. He's the exactly the sort of guy who you'd want to get there. I think he's really happy in Utah, but he's the type of guy that you necessarily wouldn't wouldn't maybe want to let him kind of test the waters elsewhere because he might like something that he sees and and somebody I mean I think the Jazz would would pay him pretty much the max or very close to it at the time which might be a really really huge number at that point in in summer of 2018 I believe but if they could get it done earlier and like you said, know that they have him locked up. And like I say, it's kind of too bad that they can't do the same with Hayward because we saw, you know, he, like I said, I think he's really happy here as well, but we saw the restricted free agency last summer. He 
he was happy here, but he somebody else was willing to throw something big at him, and he was willing to take a chance on it. I, I think that it would be better for the Jazz had they eliminated that possibility, and they could have locked him up two years earlier. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing that it makes me think of is just the in terms of the idea of of paying a guy what he's worth and 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 locking him up and things like that is that you it. It's a good situation in that when you see deals go down, like, you know, we've, as we've all seen the whole Morris twins deal go south with, with Phoenix and what's going on there, you know, the, the, the Morris twins felt like, okay, we're, we're taking a discount because of this loyalty. And then the sons are like, this is a business. This needs to happen. And then it totally messes everything up. It, the discounts you get. Or the, or, or, or trying to sort of nickel and dime guys in order to, you know, in the, in these ways can sometimes backfire on teams in a way that like, if you're just pushing numbers around on a spreadsheet, you don't see it. But these are human beings. There's personalities and things like that. So, you know, certain give and take that can help a team in terms of their bottom line, but also is giving a guy a, a little extra bump in terms of pay, you know, money talks. And I think that's what we saw with, with, the Morris twins. And it's like, this is a business and nobody, I think the sons were the only ones who realized that was what was going on. So I think, I think the more tools the teams have to be able to, uh, make things run smoothly on just a personnel level, much less on a spreadsheet sort of bank account level that that's great for them. Yeah. I think that's definitely a good point. And there's, there's a balancing act that a lot of teams have struggled with already. And you're right that that could be a way to resolve it. The, the next question I had, and I think this is probably going to be an easy answer, we'll start with Steve, is the rookie that you're most excited to see this year? <laughs> uh, well, it's Nemanja Bielitsa, right? Now, um, hey, it, I, I like Bielitsa a lot. Now, I'm in, I mean, hey, I have a lot of – I have an embarrassment of riches to pick from when it comes to rookies on, on the Timberwolves. And it's tough because I thought about going with, like, Tyus Jones because I am really interested to see what happens with Tyus Jones given the fact that he's from Minnesota and there's this whole hometown boy element to it. But at the end of the day, after having seen the Wolves scrimmage and having watched them on Summer League, I mean, it's Carl Anthony Towns. Like, I, And I think the thing that still makes him sort of a dark horse in some ways is that as a number, in some ways when you're the number one pick, it's like you're the least interesting because people want to see how a number two, is the number two better than the number one? Like in some ways being picked number one is like you – you only can go down from there in, in some sense. And we, you know, the Wolves already have Wiggins, who seems like he's already on track to be a really, really good player. And so when, when they got Towns, it was sort of like, oh, well, that's good. They got another really good player. But, you know, Towns is, could be really amazing. You know, I mean, he could be really amazing. And it's exciting to have two players with so much, uh, such a high ceiling. I mean, one of the things I've talked about a lot this summer is that, you know, even back when the Wolves had, Love and Ruby, and, and then in Rubio's rookie year when he came over and, and Peck looked a lot better that season, you sort of looked at this team and thought, hey, if everything goes right, just right, and they make a cool, they, they sort of, Rubio's defense helps out with Love's defense and, and Pekovic's, uh, you know, his limitations dovetail all right with everything else. They could be like a really fun team who could be scrappy and an upstart. But you're looking now at like Wiggins and Towns, and if they live up to their ceilings, which is a big if, obviously, there's a whole lot of things on the table. But you're looking at two back-to-back number ones who could be two of the best players in the league on one team, you know, within the next five years. So it's it's really exciting to have a, a ceiling that high, and it's going to be really exciting to see Towns play this year and see how he fits into that. That's interesting. The, the interesting that you mentioned that I was actually going to ask both of you guys what you thought. Who has the higher ceiling out of those two guys? Do you think? 
Towns for me. Towns has the possibility of being a generational player, meaning that he can do something that is unusual and different. Wiggins is it has a ton of physical potential. He's a ton of talent, but the idea of a stretch five that you don't have to sacrifice anything on defense is amazing to me. I think that ultimately Towns's ceiling is probably higher simply because there have been fewer players who fit that mold. I mean, we're seeing players like. Anthony Davis, not that I'm comparing Towns to Anthony Davis, but you know, you're talking about tremendously long front court players who are also athletic and who can also shoot. There's less of a template for that. I mean, Wiggins is inevitably, if he becomes a dominant wing player, uh, he's going to be compared to Pippen. You know, he's already gets comparisons to Pippen because of the defense and stuff like that. He's going to get compared to, you know, if his ceiling is so high, he's going to get compared to Jordan, people like that. There's just, it's a harder place to innovate that stuff. I, I think Towns is going to be, it could be really exciting if he really does hit that ceiling. He could be, like you're saying, a type of player who's both defensively huge and then if his offense is – like, again, nobody really talked that much about his offense during the draft, leading up to the draft, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you're watching clips of him shooting the three-pointer. You're like, oh, maybe you know he's actually a stretch – he's a stretch five. This could be kind of amazing. So in that sense, I think his ceiling is higher simply because there, there's been less uh, precedent set for that position. He's also a really good passer, and that's that's something that matters because it's more of a surplus benefit, but it, it matters in terms of when you're getting it from this five because, again, tying back to the Warriors, is that when you can get that from an unusual position, it makes the offense work a lot better. Temperamentally, it's been interesting to see sort of the little bits we've seen so far from Towns and from, you know, Tyus Jones and then having seen Wiggins and Levine and, and all these different rookies and how those different personalities might possibly dovetail in the future. And it sort of seems like Wiggins is a little, you know, he's a little stoic. He warms up and he's very professional and everything like that. But he might be a guy, you know, one of the biggest concerns about Towns and Wiggins, I think, is the question of looking at other dynamic duos like Marbury and Garnett, like, you know, Penny Hardaway and Shaq and how ego got in the way and, you know, wanting to be the man was a problem and things like that. You right now looking at these two guys just right now, knowing knowing what we know about their personalities, it seems like neither of them are going to run into that problem. Hopefully, it seems like Towns might be even a little more willing than Wiggins to sort of be a face of the franchise type guy. And if that lets Wiggins flourish without having to deal with a lot of that and Towns takes a lot of that on. That, you know, it could end up working out really well for the balance of the team as a whole. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that. And that, you know, I think that's important when you, you know, maybe in certain situations you downplay that and talent, of course, probably matters more. But when we're talking about, like you said, guys who have ceilings as upper echelon, like, you know, some of the best players in the NBA, that I think that is a realistic consideration is do you come to a point where there's a, a clash of, of, you know, guys that are, are, they aren't willing to have the ball less or have the ball more. And I, I definitely, from what I know of Wiggins, I've been around him just a little more, and I also know his brother uh, pretty well. Who played? He played for the Jazz in summer league this year, um, and we talked a lot. That's his older brother, Nick Wiggins. They're very, they're, they're very humble guys in general, and I, I don't think that that's ever gonna whatever. Even if Wiggins ends up somewhere else eventually, I don't think that's ever gonna be an issue for him in his career. Is I think he's, I don't think he's got the same sort of ego that maybe a lot of other guys in the league do. 
One other guy we have to bring up is Moutier. I mean, he was he the, was he mine. Was, he's he, mine. Yeah. yeah, he was the best player that I saw in summer league. If we're talking only about guys who you're not, I think he might have even been the, the best player I saw in summer league. Even if you don't put on the qualifiers of second year guys, you know, guys like T.J. Warren who should be good in summer league after the second year. But he was amazing. He's going to struggle his first year. He's a young point guard. Young point guards, especially when they're giving a big role, they always struggle. But if he can show bits and pieces of something special, that's notable for just the arc of the league. Because anytime you can get somebody who has these capabilities, it's always exciting to see how it goes. I could not take my eyes off him at Summer League when I was there. And I made a little bit of personal history. I was on SportsCenter because they showed one of his driving dunks, and I was standing right behind the basket when it happened, like watching him intently with all <laughs> eyes. And they, they, the camera angle they took was from the, the uh, other baseline. So you could see me just, like, standing there staring at Emmanuel Moutier as he drove down the lane for this awesome dunk. It was a career highlight, i got to say. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm really excited to say him. Apologies to the Utah fans that I didn't say Trey Lyles, but honestly, I Trey Lyles might not play that much, and Moutier is going to play a ton. Like he's going to be on the court all the time. I was just so I've been so impressed with the bits that I've seen from Moutier as far as his maturity and his professionalism. Because I guess you inherent like it's wrong that we do this, and I'm getting into one of maybe the inherent biases that we have. You think of a guy like Moutier, he had the issues with the eligibility and the whole thing, and he ended up playing in China. I think we almost have a tendency to think of that meaning that in some way he's not mature or that he's that he's got some kind of an issue with personality and it I mean there's actually really no connection between those two at all sometimes like sometimes there's just other stuff at play and I think with Moutier that appears to pretty obviously be the case he seems like a really really grown up kid for his age and he's I, I really love everything about his game. He obviously needs to bring the shooting along a little and you're right, it's gonna be kind of a long year for him as far as learning things and, and getting in at this level. But I can't wait to see what he brings. He's he's so dynamic and his vision is, is excellent. Yeah, I also really like Moutier. I mean I think he's I, I do find the thing of the, the, these guys who there's just not that much known about them because like of his situation and and, and you know um Playing abroad and everything like that. It's just it's too small, too small a sample size to really draw conclusions about what it means when a guy does that or, you know, you know, just, just like you're saying, there's, there's so much backstory and it's different for everybody and it's wrong to just say, well, Brandon Jennings did it and then Brandon Jennings look at him, like, you know, and say, draw some conclusion because of that. I think that there's the more that I think, I think the trend is going to be more of these guys doing this kind of stuff. And I think that's fine. I think the NBA will figure out how to contextualize their games, you know, overseas and contextualize them better. They know how to contextualize NCAA players a lot better, although never anybody from Syracuse because nobody learns how to play defense in Syracuse, right? So, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just saying that as a Timberwolves guy who watched Johnny Flynn and Les Johnson come to the Timberwolves. So. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was but, low on both of them when they came in. So Yeah, I know. But, you know, I, I think that the NBA is going to learn how to deal with that kind of situation and it's going to become more common and then it won't be such a, a, you know, a question mark going into the draft or anything. And Moody is going to be a lot of fun to watch. So I'm definitely going to enjoy yeah, uh, watching the Nuggets. I'm, I'm a huge fan just conceptually of guys playing against professional basketball players before they come to the NBA. I think people talk about how it's hard to evaluate sometimes compared to college because, as you said, we have you know we have ways of understanding that and contextualizing it. But I, one of the reasons I think a lot of European players, beyond the language and cultural issues, but that's something that an American going abroad doesn't have to deal with in terms of when they come back, is 
Playing against professionals is a very different thing than playing against your peer group, and it's great preparation for the NBA because that's what you're doing. You're playing against people who have done this, who do this for a living. They don't have to have, whether it's the auspices or just real life, actually having to go to school and do all that kind of stuff. And you get to play with people who are older and stronger than you. I, I, will, I really would love to see an American big man go to the ACB for a year, and just so we could see what it's like and see, you know, they could get that adjustment. And Moutier will be a very exciting test for it, just like any player who is it because who does that, because we still have had so few do it. Mm-hmm. I think you're I think you're totally right, and that we're going to start seeing more of those here or there. Not a ton. It's not going to be all of a sudden all the best American prospects start doing that. But and that just goes into the you know I've been one of the loudest uh, champions of the whole ever you know the whole he, he should stay in school another year because that'll help him prepare for the NBA more. Well, how do, how is that? How, how is staying in a place where you have a number of distractions that are going to be not present at all in your NBA career, and you're playing against at times kids who are you're never going to see guys like that in the NBA because it's all guys like you or better, and you don't have to deal with the the you know the the fanfare. You don't have to deal with the pressures of all the money and things like that that are going on the business side of things. All the travel. Why? How does being in college better prepare you for that than actually being in a professional environment? And I make that argument for the NBA, but it's a, it's totally realistic for guys going abroad as well. Why not help prepare yourself in a far more applicable way rather than doing something that in reality doesn't actually transfer over all that much besides maybe the basketball on the court? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm pretty firmly in that boat. I've been in that been in it for a long time. I think that the NBA, the NCAA doesn't do a great job preparing themselves because that's not their goal. And that's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be. And it and whereas something like the ACB, they're balancing, you know, developing and winning winning basketball games and the Chinese leagues are like that too. And you get to you get a better sense of it. Also, what can't be discounted is making some money. You know, a lot of these guys, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, that even that if let's say it's a million dollars or less than a million dollars, that that money, whether or not they make the league, is a substantial change to their life. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I think that it's it's always difficult to say what situations are going to set you up for the for the next situation when you when you're in a different league. And I think the NBA really is. I mean, it's such a different. Every league has its own different things that that come along with it, and there's going to be adjustment going from any from the NCAA to to the NBA. There's going to be difference going from the Euro League to the NBA. But I do think it's like I mean, you're certainly there's certainly some benefit in terms of going through the NCAA simply because that's the path that is most well tread. There's you know the agents know how to talk to the coaches, who know the scouts, who know you know who know the the GMs of teams and everything like that. There's sort of this communication set up. But I think those communications are being increasingly set up with teams in Europe. And I think there is something valid to the point that, you know, these guys over in Europe are playing for a paycheck. They're, they're, they're playing for money. Um, I'd be interested to see possibilities with more D-League things of, of people going from going to the D-League and spending time in the D-League and then going into the NBA without it being a sort of stigma that this guy played in the D-League. Right now, the D-League still definitely carries this thing of, you know, once you go to the NBA, you don't ever want to go to go down to the D League. But I would love to see the D League become something where it's much more closely attached to teams. Guys really learn how to play within the system that of the team they're assigned to in the D League, and that the D League isn't this stigma, and that it can be a place that seems like the best opportunity to actually to develop something that would genuinely, you know, work to train these guys to be NBA players. 
I, I was just gonna say in general that I, that I, I've, I've, I have. That's maybe like the one of the three or four most common questions that I have. Like sports people that are that they like all sports. They're not as in depth into basketball. They'll ask me why doesn't the NBA effectively have a like a farm system like the like the Major League Baseball where you own these players and they can remain in your system at a lower level until they've developed to the right level. And honestly, I don't, besides, you know, complex money issues and, and things like that, I don't have a great answer for those people. I, I agree basically with everything Steve was just saying. I think it would be, that that would be the, the, the primary way that you could do it. I don't know feasibly that it necessarily works at this point, but I'm glad to see that the league's been working towards that with now, I believe, isn't it now all but one of the D-League teams are now owned by a, a particular, or maybe it's all of them. I think all the teams they're, now. They're, because going, they're probably going to be at one to one by 2016, 17. There's an issue with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants that they were going to basically they're transitioning from being a multi team to being a one to one. And so the question is, where's is everybody else going to go? But I, the, the, I, what I've heard, I haven't heard it recently, but people who know this better than I do have said that they might delay that switch over for a year because and then use that to make it go really one to one a year from now. So where does that leave? Because there are not 30 D-League teams. Where does that leave the teams that, that don't have those? Well, they'll have to create them. That's the idea is that they get a kind of a year to build that infrastructure. But to answer right. your question about why it doesn't happen now, I think there are a couple big issues with it. One is the money part. And I've said for a long time that America has the infrastructure to have the second best basketball league in the world. The problem with it for me is that you need to make a choice you might need to make a choice. I shouldn't say definitively because I don't know. Between having that and having a minor league, because you, the issue is cost. You know, if if you can build a second league, let's say like a twenty-team league that has salaries that can compete with the best leagues in Europe, guys will stay. If it's close, guys will stay. Oh, a million percent. They'll absolutely. I've heard that specifically from you. You know, there are teams in Europe. Sometimes the owner, like not the highest level teams, not the Barcelonas and Real Madrids, but the lower level teams, where guys just flat out don't get paid when the owner doesn't think they're playing well enough. I heard. I started hearing these stories over the summer, and they oh, freaked yeah. me out. I I had no idea that was a thing. Like the owner can just decide all of a sudden, like, hey, I'm leaving and going to this island that I own, and we're not paying you guys at all because you're not playing well. And sometimes guys just like don't get paid for the last like. Several months of a season, which is crazy to me. And you're so you're right. If it's even moderately close, guys will stay in the U.S. Yeah, and so so then you have the question of if if of what do you want with it? If if you're going to have the second best league, to me, that's the benefit of having it be a minor league system, is because then you're not necessarily doing it with a profit motive. And we've already seen the NBA support a league without a profit motive before, so it's right. not that's not necessarily an unprecedented step. And what what you're going for in that circumstance, yeah, if you can get that quality is to me, and of course this is another issue I harp on a lot, is what's the point, if you're going to do that, then you can do your player development in a way that is better than the NCAA, because the NCAA doesn't do a good job of player development. It's not what they're supposed to do, it's not what they're paid to do, those coaches aren't supposed to do that. So if you can go to a system like that, you can allow kids who want to go to college to go to college, then you take, in a lot of ways, you're actually helping, you're not helping the quality of playing college basketball, but you're helping it clean up a lot of the issues that it, that are so messy in that sport because players at a certain age have financial value, but they can't capitalize on it, so all of it has to come under the table. Yeah, it's a mess. We've also gone way off the Northwest. <laughs> hey, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, but hey, that's, it's that's cool. 
that's, the, that's the point of these podcasts. This, no, this I mean, is, this is what my AP biology teacher in high school would have called a bird walk, where he would be like, let's go on a bird walk. You just have nothing to do with any lesson plan. But I loved it. It was great. So I'm, I'm all for this. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, you know, and I, I think you would, you, you would even make it better for those kids who are, you know, kids who happen to be in the basketball system in the NCAA, but who are aware at an early point in their lives that that's not what they're going to be doing professionally. Because it's like you say, Danny, there's, there's these guys, there's, you know, your Andrew Wiggins or whoever, who's, everybody knows what this guy is. Everybody knows he's a top five draft pick and that he's, he's gone after this year. And he's basically going through the motions there because he has to. But at the same time, he's taking playing time away from other guys. And in many cases, he's completely dominating his peers that, that are, you know, that shouldn't even be on the court with him, even though some of them are older than he is. And I think it makes that whole experience. And the people who I know that prefer college basketball to the NBA, they all say they prefer it because of the spirit of the game and because of the camaraderie and because of the crowds and because of all those things. I think you could actually increase those elements to a certain point if you let the guy, the Wigginses of the world just straight out of high school or whatever go and play in a more developmental league like the D-League where we know that their eventual goal is the one they're actually working towards there rather than pretty much circumventing kind of a goofy system. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how you managed to turn the whole thing on its ear you know, to do that, but it would make a world of sense to have, you know, and I'm not saying that you have to like have guys go back to going straight from high school. If that's the thing that the NBA obviously seems like they just keep trying to push that farther and farther up. But you know, the guys where it's clear that they're going to be professionals one day, why not just make them professionals now and start, you know, you pay them some amount of money. You realize that what they're seriously about is becoming NBA players and you train them to do that. Then you have guys who go into college basketball and you get your guys like your Nick Collison's and, and players like that who are like four, who can be like four year players, three or four year players or something like that in a system. And then they come out as like having played in college ball. And that was a great experience for them. And then some of them are going to end up being useful to NBA teams and some aren't. But it could to me, it's you know, you'd still it would make college basketball more fun to follow because it wouldn't have that. Like you're saying, that element of these guys are just here for a year. That's part of the problem I have with I have with college basketball is I like following players, you know, on a team or when they move in the NBA or they go to a different team or something like that. Knowing that the best players are just going to be there for a year, I can't get invested in the team they're on or anything like that because it's going to be over. And know? it also has a huge effect on continuity, which we've seen in college basketball and pro basketball can be a huge thing. You know, players growing and developing together. In college, there are certain schools that just know that continuity isn't going to be a thing for them. And if you go to a system where you kind of filter out a lot of the the one-and-dones now. Who knows, maybe Adam Silver will push for it to be two-and-dones in the next CBA. But you get those guys in a different track, then you're, you're, building more, you're building in a very different way. Also, you're changing around the structure of you know, where guys go, and there are also these ancillary benefits in terms of academic standards and things like that because schools could avoid some of the heat they get because they, you know if there's somebody who's really good in football or basketball, some schools are more permissive about le- letting their academic standards go. If you went to more of a pure amateur style thing, they could they could use that leverage however they wanted. But yeah, but we'll move back into the into the part that that's a good way of g- going into the season preview. And we'll start with Ben. Is the top of this I think is pretty clear, but the bottom gets fun. How would you rank these teams one to five? Yeah, the, the, the bottom is really the whole interesting part. And I actually, I wrote an article for Basketball Insiders ranking the Northwest Division a few weeks ago. And by far the toughest part for me was deciphering three, four, and five. Because I think, barring some pretty major injuries or major shakeups, 
Oklahoma City wins the division and the Jazz are second. The way I have it, uh, the way I had it in my piece was I went Portland third, Minnesota fourth, Denver fifth. But I've reconsidered that like 12 times. And now I actually really think that I have Minnesota third and that I have, oh God, I guess Denver fourth and I guess Portland fifth. It feels so wrong to say that one of those teams is not going to be last in their division because they should be. Like you look at those, I tweeted it out earlier today. The highest paid player on Portland's roster next season is going to be Alfaruga Minu, <laughs> which is frightening in a way. Those teams, the, the three, four, and five, there, the, I really think that you look at a team like Minnesota, there's a real chance that they improve a decent bit. You look at when Rubio played last year, and I know you're saying a big if with assuming they can get, you know, 70-plus healthy games out of Ricky Rubio, but when he did play last year, several major two-man combinations they had with him were actually positives per 100 possessions on the court. Like Rubio and Peck together were a positive. Rubio and Shabazz Muhammad were a positive. Rubio and KG, they played like an, a really small number of minutes, but they crushed teams during those minutes. Rubio and Wiggins were almost, they weren't quite, they were like minus one and a half or minus two or something like that. So to me, that could, that actually has the makings of a competent team if they can get a lot out of, out of Rubio and if Wiggins maybe progresses a little bit more and they can get NBA stuff out of towns. They got a lot of guys who could progress. I don't really just, I don't see any of that with the other teams in with, with Portland and Denver. I just don't, what is like, what's the upside? And specifically with Denver, who initiates offense for that team? Is it really just going to be Moutier from the start? Because losing Lawson, you look up and down the rest of their roster. They don't have any guys there that can really create their own mismatches or excuse me, mismatches. They don't have guys that can create separation, draw rotations, anything like that. Unless Malone has got like a really excellent system that's coming in there, which is, going to be pretty tough to implement from the start who really gets the offense going over there it's, it's funny because the order that you revised to was the order that i wrote it in the first time i just thought about it and then i revised it to the order that you had initially <laughs> so <laughs> um mostly because i sort of felt like I, I at first i had i had the blazers at the bottom and then i moved them up to third now because as much upheaval as they went through i still feel like damian lillard is is great and i think like you're saying it's sort of a specific problem with the nuggets which is having a rookie point guard who's not necessarily a great shooter and then a bunch of other guys who create off the ball but don't can't really do anything necessarily with the ball by themselves You've got Damian Lillard on the, the the Trailblazers, and I could fully see him winning the scoring title, like just because what else is gonna, who else is gonna take take any of the weight there? So, and the Blazers were good last year, so I, I feel like yes, there's gonna be a fall off, but they're also there's there's enough there that's consistent. They have you know they have their same coach, they have Lillard who is sort of, he was at the center of the offense and initiating the offense. Um, then I had the Timberwolves fourth because I do think that they are – I think the thing that – and I think uh, Ben was alluding to this a little bit that uh, – or, or sort of near this idea, which is that if you look back two years ago, the last season with Love and when they finished 40 and 42, they really underperformed in weird ways. This was something that we talked about a lot, like around, talking about the Wolves. You know, the fact that their Pythagorean wins were something like they were going to win – they should have won 50 games, but they won 40. They had lost all those close games. There was this weird thing. So um, I think before last season – uh, Kevin Pelton was talking about how, you know, plugging all that stuff into, into his metrics, it was showing the fact that they, sh it's not like you've got a 40 win team who lost Kevin Love and now they're going to win, you know, 20 games. You have like a 52 win team that lost Kevin Love and they're going to win 32. But the thing is, is that 
they also had a ton of injuries last season. I mean, within the first, you know, couple weeks of the season, they had lost Rubio and Martin for extended periods of time and then Pekovic. Pekovic, I don't know that his injuries are going to ever get better. He might end up just being a 20 minute a night kind of guy, but they don't, they're not going to feel that loss as much. Uh, Rubio, they need to keep healthy, but if they, if Rubio goes down, they're not going, falling back on Zach Levine. They actually, they have Andre Miller now. You know, they have Tyus Jones, who's more of a pure point guard in a lot of ways than, than Levine, although he's also a rookie. I just think they're, they're going to be a good chunk better this season, provided that, that health maintains for them. And so I see them being better than the Nuggets, who I think stumbled. They, they improved at the end of last season, but I think that, they're in a shakeup mode right now and everything that Ben said about the fact of having a rookie point guard initiating plays for guys like Farid and Gallinari who, who are good players, but aren't, you know, they can't star with the ball. You saw the problem with Thad Young on the Wolves last season. Once everybody was injured, he had a bunch of rookies around him and he's a small ball power forward. How is he supposed to dictate the pace of the game from that position as a small ball, you know, power forward? <laughs> it's very difficult. And I think that the, the Nuggets are going to run into the same problems. You've convinced you've convinced me to move. I'm going to move. So I'm keeping Minnesota third, but I'm going to I'm going to put Portland fourth and Denver fifth. So that's my final rankings there. Okay. Thank you. So <laughs> I had I had trouble with this too. We all did, and I really like Denver's talent on the aggregate. I, I'm big on Nurkic. Moutier is going to be rough this year, but he has talent, and I actually think Gallinari can in stretches run. He can do some offensive initiation. I don't think you want him to like be your primary ball handler, but he can do some initiation. But when I started thinking about it, I was like, okay, I, I like Denver. I'm higher on them than most. But then I went, Minnesota's better basically at every position. You know, Minnesota yep. has so much right. more depth. And when you think about this, you know, if you, if you want to classify it in terms of regular season record, Minnesota is so much more resilient to things like injuries. I mean, Denver has some talent, but if almost any of those guys get hurt, then you're replacing them with inferior players, and then that's when you start to get in problems. That's exactly what happened in Minnesota last year, incidentally. So I actually ended up with Minnesota third, and then the Denver-Portland choice really, to me, just ends up with the, the magnitude of Damian Lillard. I think, I'm a big believer that if you have a, a kind of a, a bat, like a lower-end talent team, a star-caliber player, and I think Lillard is he's a little bit maybe overrated in terms of, you know, that I think he's more famous than he is good, but he's still really, really, really good. It's just mm-hmm. that he's really, really, really famous. And... That is enough to carry them because he will be creating looks, and they're a team that has, beyond having like horrible guard depth, they have a very good front court in terms of players. And they just so if, you know, if Cayman plays, then that's a nice benefit. But they don't need him to be great. They don't need Leonard to be great. And so I, I ended up with the what with what Ben just changed to, which was Minnesota three. Uh, Portland at four, Denver at five, but really any order, but it was fun. And that leads into the next question, which those teams are probably irrelevant in, which is how many teams in this division do you think make the playoffs? Well, yeah, you know, it can't be more than two. And I think the crux of that question comes down to do the Jazz make the playoffs or not? Because, uh, I mean, you know, again, barring catastrophe, OKC is making the playoffs, right? So I personally, my opinion, and maybe this has some Homer tendencies coming out in with, with it, is... I actually think the Jazz are a pretty solid bet, even still with the Exum injury, to have the eighth seed. And I, I think it's by a decent margin. I don't think Phoenix is going to be that good. And I don't think that, I think Dallas is just a little bit too far past 
the the spot where they could be a team that could really compete with a group like Utah. Again, assuming health is all even and everything like that, I actually don't see a ton of challenge for the Jazz as far as making the eighth spot, and they're, they're totally fine with doing that. They, they realize that they've got a bunch of young guys that they need to keep with the program, and that part of doing that involves winning and getting in, even if it means you're going to get killed in the playoffs by somebody great, you've got to get there, and you've got to give the guys the experience of, like, this is what the crowd's like when we're in the playoffs, and so on and so forth. I, I think the Jazz are a pretty, uh, like a, not a very solid bet, but a pretty solid bet to make that eighth seed. I don't know if you guys maybe disagree, think a little differently about Phoenix or Dallas, perhaps. I actually don't. I'm totally with you on that. I think that Dallas, um, I think that, you know, if, if, if things had gone right for Dallas this offseason, they, they, they would have been in that spot. Um, it, it partly, I mean, obviously just partly from the standpoint of like young talent and getting DeAndre Jordan and, you know, getting a player like that. Not that like Jordan catapults them into the playoffs. I just think that like they're, the, the hit that they took, you know, psychologically, like they're either going to have to have like they're going to maybe the if they're if they get scrappy maybe they make it but they might be a little too old to really get scrappy and you've got Wes Matthews coming back from an Achilles injury which not a lot of people come back from very well um i i don't think Dallas is is making that eight spot which is i was just looking at the ESPN forecast and i think they had Dallas in the eight spot um and then Phoenix is also it's so weird how Phoenix went from this sort of Cinderella story two years ago to like losing all their players and everybody hates each other's guts now, like in, in the span of two seasons. So I'm definitely buying high on the Jazz. I mean, I think you look at their performance in the second half of last year and you look at what Gobert can be. The fact is you just throw him on that, on a team in the playoffs, especially. I mean, you just like getting into the playoffs when it slows down a little bit. I mean, he's going to be, I think they're not only going to be the eighth seed. I think they're going to be a tough out at the eighth seed. Um, if Gobert continues his rise, which, which would be great because he's awesome. Uh, I got to interview him once and he was a lot of fun. So, uh, he is, I, he is fantastic in every, in every possible way. Yesterday or a few days ago, I went on a, I was bored on Twitter and asked my followers who, who do we think has the higher ceiling out of Nerland's Noel or, or Rudy Gobert? And we had, there was discussion back and forth and I gave my opinions and so on and so forth, which were that Gobert is way, way better right now, obviously. And that if I had to take one guy for the next 10 years, I would take Gobert because mm-hmm. there's no, there's no guarantee that Noel develops into his ceiling. And then right at the end, I put in parentheses, I put, I think Noel has a slightly higher ceiling right at the end and Gobert favorited that tweet. Only that tweet, not the, rest of, not, <laughs> not the rest of the conversation where I talked yeah. about how awesome he was for basically the entire time. And he's like that. He does that with a lot of people. In fact, he the chip on his shoulder is massive. He made his number in the NBA, the pick that he was selected with in the right. draft because he thought it was too low. I, I could do a full podcast about Rudy Gobert, so yeah. I'll digress. But he's, yeah, I'm really, I'm, <laughs> I know I'm a homer, but I'm about as excited for the Jazz as everybody else, even after the Exum injury. Because you talk about the, they were on a 54-win pace after the All-Star break last season, and that was with probably the worst point guard play in the NBA. So even if that continues, or if it even can get just moderately better, I think they're still going to have a lot of room for success. Yeah, I, 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 for me, when you think about the lower-end playoff teams, and this is true for me in the East, though those teams are a lot worse, is I like to think about how are they going to beat teams. And so for the Jazz, that that's an easy case. Their defense is really good. They have a, a kind of weird offense without XM, you know, without traditional point guard play, but they have enough guys, you know, Hayward and all that, to, to be feisty in that way. I don't see it with the Mavericks. If they're fully healthy, sure, but if they're anything less than that, and considering they have two guys coming off notable injuries and Darren Williams, who hasn't been Darren Williams in a little bit, 
that seems unlikely. I about Darren Williams. Phoenix, <laughs> Phoenix certainly has talent. I mean, I think Tyson Chandler is going to do a lot for their defense. I think that they're going to they're going to be in a much better place on the aggregate, but they're still not all the way there. So I think yeah, it's Utah's spot to lose. And the other reason why I would say too, and I've done enough of these that I I, I feel comfortable doing this hedge, is is just the law of numbers. Is that even if Utah is the ninth best team. There's only one team in this division that is above them. So if anybody else falls out due to injury, they're the team that benefits. So I I think it's pretty likely that it's two. And the other huge benefit that Utah has is that the bottom of the West didn't get notably better. I mean, the teams that got better were really low. And the teams that got the teams that were more in contention with them got worse. So that works out that, you know, that's fine. So I think it's pretty reliable that it's two. That doesn't mean it's a guarantee or anything. I mean, who, you, we would have probably thought it was going to be it was going to be one last year, or it was going to be two last year. But how it happened, you know, how everything yeah. happened was was what happened. But Utah is in a, is in a good place, and something that Ben brought up, which I actually think has a lot more resonance with the Jazz about the idea of going for the seed, is that if the Jazz don't make the playoffs. They're going to miss the playoffs with one of the best, if not the best record of a non-playoff team. So you're talking more about the difference between the 14th pick and the like 16th or 17th pick, as opposed to an Eastern Conference team that's kind of in that same boat. And they're like, look at Miami last year. They're kind of choosing between 10 and losing their and keeping their pick or 15 and, and losing it. And so that's a little bit of a different calculus on the margins. I still don't think most teams turn down a playoff berth. But it affects the way that you think about the process. So there's no reason for them not to gun for it because they're they're fine. You know, they're fine either way. Exactly. And, well, so I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of this. I had it written down. Assuming no massive injuries, like Durant plays most of the season and so do the Jazz guys and so on, Are is there any plausible scenario in the world where the Jazz are a better team and actually win the division over a healthy OKC? It's probably no, but what would need to happen? Is there a world where the right combination of things could happen to make that happen? Are we counting body switching as an option? (laughs) Thunderstruck style. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I I can't see it. Like all of a sudden Elijah Millsap body switches with Kevin Durant. Like, Weirder things have happened. No. <laughs> yeah, I, but I mean, Oklahoma City, if they're healthy, like because that because if we're putting that caveat on, they're if they're healthy, they're really, really, really good. And so for Utah, they it would have to be to me that they're the best defense in the league, and that their offense is you no, know, maybe probably top half, but not maybe top ten. That might be enough if Oklahoma City has some growing pains and has some struggles. But if we're giving the if healthy caveat, I think Oklahoma City is good enough to bypass that anyway. Yeah, I keep coming back to the if healthy thing that you're just I mean, you're talking about Westbrook and Durant are two of the top 10 players in the league, you know, uh, as long as they're healthy. And that's just, you know, I keep thinking like, well, if Gobert really explodes like and and the rest of the defense comes along with them and they're just like the stingiest defense if Durant's unhealthy, maybe. But, yeah, again, as long as there's health um, on OKC side, I think they're still going to come out on top. Well, the interesting thing about what you said, Danny, was about the, them having, like, a borderline top ten offense along with, like, a historically great defense. What's interesting is that from the All-Star break on last season, they did have that historically great defense, which I don't know that we expect it to be exactly like that again. In fact, I wrote a piece about how it will regress almost certainly. But – they were, for the year and during that period, it was re- remained relatively stable. They were right in the middle of the pack offensively. I think they finished the year 16th 
per 100 possessions. How much of a jump does it really take for, especially with a team like the Jazz, where they get Alec Burks back from injury from the whole year, they get some serious expected development from a guy like Rodney Hood, potentially, maybe from, uh, and that's a long shot, but maybe from a guy like Trey Burke. A number of their rotational pieces are young guys who you expect to get better from last year to this year. H- how crazy is it to imagine the Jazz having like a borderline top 10 offense while also having the best defense in the league? I don't think it's that crazy, personally. I don't know. I'm probably. I think that. I think that you're, you, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I think that you would, what you need is more than, than you need the knowns to be great. Like to have Gobert take another step, to have Gordon Hayward, you know, re- play out of his gourd. You're going to need somebody like Rodney Hood to just sort of like a lesser known player to suddenly explode in some way and then have, you know, Dion Waiters or Ennis Kantner really blow up. Um, then maybe you're talking about a, the, a historically good defense in a top 10 offense or just outside a top 10. But yeah, it might have to be something completely from left field that you, you'd you still have to be relying on something so out of left field that it's practically a health concern. You know what I'm saying? That like, if you're going to limit health concerns, you got to involve UFOs and you know extraterrestrials. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, you, I think you touched on it just for a second, Danny, and we had it written down as well. Something that's been all over here is the, the, the possibility of Utah playing without a traditional point guard for stretches, which I think the lineup people imagine there would be Alec Burks pl- essentially playing the de facto one, and then you have Hood and Hayward, and then the two bigs, whichever two you want. Um I've been really intrigued by this. There's a few guys around that are around Utah blogs and whatnot that are really championing this, like to the point that the Jazz should consider starting it. I wouldn't go that far because I'm really worried about whether Burks has the defensive chops kind of to guard necessarily like all the ones. Like there are certain point guards that I think he could check reasonably, but he's got some issues off the ball. He tends to drift into no man's land like really badly. That said, I'm kind of intrigued by the possibility, at least maybe there's certain games where you can close with that lineup or you can go segments of time with that lineup and, or you could go, you mentioned Elijah Millsap. He's a bit of a, of a zero offensively, but he's one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. And he can definitely check nearly any point guard you put him on. And I I think that's really interesting. If you guys were the jazz, would you be looking at doing those sorts of things every now and then? I I mean, I love creative lineups and it's one of my favorite things to to sort of hypothesize about with teams. Uh, You know, I know I've gone over like with the Wolves, like the different lineups that I think would be fun, like, you know, Shabazz Muhammad at the four and stuff like that alongside Towns. I think that we get a lot more interested in that stuff than coaches ever get into. I mean, some coaches obviously are going to make manic, crazy lineup changes, but I think a lot of them only really do that once they really feel like everybody on the team knows exactly where they're supposed to be and where they feel comfortable. Um, I think it's very difficult to start doing that. I think players rely a lot on knowing what they're supposed to be doing. And so to institute an entirely different mindset for a player, because as much as we feel like the positional revolution is over, you know, and that this is like these positions that we have don't mean anything. I think a lot of players still are sort of like, this is how I play. That means that I'm this, this is what I do. And so I think moving guys out of that comfort zone can be difficult. Um, I mean, I wish that, I mean, I don't, I can't say that if more coaches tried things that were sort of unusual, that it wouldn't uh, work out. But I just think that from a personnel perspective, I think that coaches are interested in, in instability, you know, they sort of want to get to their lineups that are like, these are the lineups we go to. They don't want to be changing stuff up every night. I think Steve hit on hit on the big point, which is, you know, that their creatures habit. The way that I would see a, a no traditional point guard lineup working, and I actually 
kind of thought of this on the fly when I had Ben Golliver on, which is if you could have a guy who doesn't fit the point guard role defensively, who can fill it offensively? So you think about somebody like Kyle Anderson. Because what he's doing then is he's not changing where everybody else is on the floor. He's just a bigger guy doing the same thing. That is a lot easier for players to adjust to. And then the defensive roles can shift around, but guys are used to that. You know, if you, Alec Burks, if, if, he, if he can guard once, he, that's not a big deal. You know, he can, he can make that change. That is, the, but the offensive side of it is where that would be a problem. You know, if all of a sudden you're telling Gordon Hayward, hey, you're going to be initiating the offense 75% of the time, that's a big change for him. And that's not to say that mm. he can't do it. But I don't know. I don't know how big of a change that is for him. He, Gordon Hayward was like their whole offense last year. He they, they, he was he was the guy who like the, yes, yeah, it's but a that's a, big, it's a big difference. I I, I think that I, I want to see it. I fully support it. And if the players are ready to do it, they should. But I think that's where the adjustment is. The defensive part of it, as long as Burks can do it, and I think he can do an all right job of it. I mean, there are a ton of great point guards in the league. But, you know, he's big and he's strong, and you can use that against most of them, especially when you have the rim protection they do, because if the guy gets by you, you could just he's going to get swallowed up by wingspan. So right. you, you can do that. So, yeah, I, I think it's possible. I would love to see them consider it. The basketball, the basketball nerd in me always supports non-traditional lineups just so we can learn more about what it is. But Quinn Snyder has to want it, and the players have to want it, because whenever you're going outside of kind of outside of the norm, you need everybody on board, and they could do it. I want them to do it, but I always, I always discount it. I always discount the possibility because basically all you need is one of the veto players to say no. That's interesting. You guys had different concerns with it than what, my, like I, mine would have been the opposite of yours, Danny. I worry more about Burks on the defensive end than I do about asking Hood and Hayward to, to handle the ball more often because they, I think they've both done at least enough of it that they could be comfortable in that role. And Burks loves the ball in his hands. Like he's not going to be uncomfortable with that. So that's, that's interesting. No, I'm, I was glad to get your guys' opinions on that. Uh, so the last thing before we head out is uh, any players we've already talked about a lot of them, but anybody I would say that we haven't spent a lot of time on who you th- who you were, you're interested in as a breakout candidate. I have one. Go. Mine is actually C.J. McCollum. I'm really interested. I really like C.J. McCollum. I think he's big enough to guard both guard spots and. With that in mind, I would play him a ton. I would play him with Lillard. I'd play him without Lillard. I'd, I'd give him as many opportunities as I could. And I'm really intrigued by this guy as a shooter. Did you guys know that based on sport view, catch-and-shoot numbers, uh, he was their best catch-and-shoot guy last year, not Wesley Matthews? I did know that. Yeah, that surprised me when I first saw it. Like, I knew he was good, but I didn't realize that he had better numbers than, like, one of the better catch-and-shoot guys in the entire league in Wesley Matthews. And I'm really intrigued to see what McCollum can bring. I think he has – he's one of my early guys for most improved that I think – because I think he's going to – you know, he got, like, 15 minutes a game last year. I think that's going to – that could double very easily, maybe even a little bit more. I think he's going to get a ton of opportunity to handle the ball, and I think we're going to see that he's – especially in contrast to a guy like Lillard, who is legitimately a DH on one end of the of the floor, I think McCollum can play both ends and be a legitimate two-way guy. He's like the main reason I'll watch a lot of those Portland games, to be honest. He's great, and he's, I mean, also as, he's a good writer. I don't know if you've read this up at the Players' Tribune, but he's no. he seems like one of the actual guys who, I mean, he, I think he was the editor of his school newspaper or something in, in college and stuff like that. So I think he's pretty serious about writing. And, and so he seems like a smart guy with a lot on the ball, and I'd like to see him succeed. Um, so I, I would love to see him break out, definitely. I don't think there's anybody 
it's, it's sort of hard sometimes perspective wise because I think that a lot of Wolves fans are already really high on the Shabazz Muhammad bus. Um, like we're already on it and like this guy is fantastic and a lot of fun, but he did, you know, he had injury problems last year. So I think in a wider world, I think people might get a little better sense of Shabazz Muhammad this year. So I don't know if that counts as a breakout. Um, I mean, I also thought about guys like Gobert and Lillard who are obviously on an upward trend already. And again, people who know the NBA know these guys are good. I think the thing about Lillard is that as good as he is, he's just going to score. Like I said, he's just going to score an ungodly amount for Portland. And I think that's going to make the casual NBA fan even higher on Lillard than they already were. And, um, and Gobert makes defense sexy and fun. So, uh, I'll, I'll echo your, your guys. I like both of them, but the other guy for me is, is Nurkic. I think that he, the the Nuggets, sorry, the Nuggets are going to be more watchable than people think they're going to be a league pass, not a league pass favorite. I think Utah is actually going to be more that team for the time zone, but they're going to be strangely entertaining. And Nurkic is really good. You know, he's, he's a guy who's produced right away and, I think he's going to get the opportunity to shine there. You know, I don't think Denver's going to be that great, but whatever shine they get, a lot of that will go on him. And he's not going to be a star, but I think he'll he'll reach a different level. And plus, yeah, he's, at, he, at any moment in the game, he's a threat to knock someone into a coma. Right. So much <laughs> attitude and edge yes. on that guy. So. <laughs> I love that guy. Okay, any, anything else you guys want to discuss? I think we covered it all pretty much. We fixed the whole NCAA problem, right? So We did. We Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot. This is a lot of fun. Thanks again to Steve and Ben for taking the time. You can read Steve at Rolling Stone, Grantland, Wolf Among Wolves, Hardwood Proxism, and seemingly every other place. He's a great writer. And you can follow him on Twitter at Steve Venturus, S-T-E-V-E-N-T-U-R-O-U-S. And Ben Dowsett is writing. He's the senior writer for Basketball Insiders. He's associate editor of Salt Lake City Hoops, and he also writes for KSL.com. You can follow him also on Twitter at Ben underscore Dowsett. That's B-E-N underscore D-O-W-S-E-T-T. Both of them are definitely worth following. Great during the season. Really good now, too, as well. So I appreciate them coming on. I think it was a great conversation. You can find the other division capsules. They are on RealGM.com. They are also, if you subscribe on iTunes, you can see them there. It is great for this podcast as well as Dunked On, which I'm regularly on. If you can subscribe to them if you like them and also give them a rating on iTunes. As both podcasts are in the process of getting sponsors, it is great to have that in our back pocket because that actually helps us when we go to advertisers say, hey, this is how many people subscribe, this is how many ears that your, your message is going to get to. That's really good for us. Also have a lot of other fun stuff. The NBA Utopia Project is still going on, mainly through Sporting News, but we're taking submissions with the hashtag NBA Utopia, and there's an email address also on the Sporting News pieces that you can send material to, and I'm going to put together a best of, if you want to call it that, of the user responses of, of what people have done, and other writers, of course, too. That'll come out early, early September, once the month is actually done, and I have plenty of my own material still coming out on that. Also, the CBA Encyclopedia is still going strong, and I have a lot of other fun projects coming on. If you want to feedback on this podcast or really anything else, you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, and you could email me at daniel.larue at realgm.com. Whichever one makes you happy, I read both. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. Also, I have a Facebook page now, and it's Danny LaRue NBA. The link is on my Twitter bio, and that combines... 
all of the things that I do. The reason I wanted a Facebook page is because at this point I write for a lot of different places. I do pod, do different podcasts and everything else. And so it's one place that if you're interested in my work and I appreciate it if you are, it's all in one place. So if you want to see something, it'll all be there whether you want to see it right away or just like, hey, what has he done in the last week? I also might be doing a mailing list at some point in the near future. I'm working on that. So we'll talk about that in a later podcast. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. One of the best things about Randall's is all the friendly and helpful people. And now Randall's is looking for more great employees just like you. That's right. All Randall's stores are now hiring friendly new faces to join their team. Ages 16 and up can apply today. If you or someone you know is looking for a job with flexible schedules, great benefits, career advancement opportunities, and even scholarships, then have them stop by the nearest Randall's store for more details. Randall's, it's just better.